go to the Lord in prayer once again this morning, and we will turn in our Bibles then to the Word of God, to the book of Jude. Father in heaven, thank you for the abundance of your grace and mercy. Thank you for your Word that is the lamp to our feet and light to our path. Thank you for this time this morning to gather together around your word, to worship you, to ascribe glory and honor and praise to your name. We ask this morning that you would bless us with wisdom from your word, and that we, by virtue of your grace and the leadership of your Holy Spirit, would make the application of your word to our lives in such a way that Christ is honored. For it's truly in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you have not already, to the book of Jude and move down in our text to verse 24 and 25. We have finished these exhortations that Jude has given us with regard to confronting those who are uh, in opposition, obviously, to his word, confronting the corrupted. And uh, we come to what is referred to as the doxology of this particular book. And a doxology is a, can be a hymn. We sang the doxology this morning before we began our service. Or it is a particular group of texts from Scripture that in essence, ascribe to God glory and honor and praise. And this doxology, and the reason why we are continuing into this doxology, as you will see this morning, it is intimately related to the previous instructions that Jude has given. And we'll see that as we move into the text. But for now, begin with me in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. I want to call your attention to that very last phrase, that very last verse, as we begin. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We could ask, what is the practical implication of this verse? And the practical implication of Jude 24 is the fact that it tells us, that it communicates to us what everything is about. Someone might ask the question as they observe life in general, if we were able to back up and look at all the history of the world from its beginning to its end, and if we could all see it in one perspective and ask the question, what is it all about? What is it all about? 
If you could ask the question of your own life, what is my life all about? What is the summation of my 10 years, 20 years, 60 years, 80 years, 90 years, or however long God allows us to live? What is the summation of everything that I am doing and everything about myself? What is the reason for the existence of anything? It can be summed up in simply a single word. God. God. What's the purpose of everything? Ultimately, it's God's glory. Everything ultimately is summed up in the fact that at the end of the day, according to the Word of God, it is about God. It is about Him. And in essence, Jude is conveying that to us here. As he takes in this doxology and he ascribes glory to God. And whenever you ascribe glory to God, and that's what he's doing here, and you look at the text with me, it says, to the only God, and Lord willing, here in a, another week we may come back and look at the very specific phrases of this verse. I'm just using it now in the sense of, and looking at it now in the sense of, we have the end of the book here in this verse. We have the end of everything here in this verse. So we're going to look at the end and then back up to the previous verse 24 and look at it in the light of the end. And what Jude is saying is, to the only God our Savior, and then he goes, be glory and majesty and dominion. Some people, whenever they come to that, they think that they're adding something to God, that they are adding glory to Him, that they're adding dominion to Him, that they're adding authority to Him. Whenever God and glory is ascribed to God, basically, in the New Testament as well as the Old, or He is praised for something that He is, it is not adding anything to Him. God is in and of Himself complete. To ascribe glory to God is simply to acknowledge what is true about Him already. And furthermore, it is not only whenever the Christian ascribes glory to God that they are acknowledging what is true about Him, but they are also, in their ascribing glory to Him, they are assenting to that. They are acknowledging that they see what is true about God from His Word, and they are communicating that they are in agreement with it. And by the way, the text ends with that word, Amen. And the word Amen means to be in agreement, to in essence say, let it be. So, Jude is ascribing glory to God. He's making statements here that are true about God. And notice this. <clears throat> Be glory to Him. 
Whenever we talk about the glory of God, we, we can go back into the Old Testament, into the book, for instance, of Exodus chapter 33, whenever Moses called out to God, and he said to God in verse 19 of Exodus 33, or 18, he said, I want to see your glory. He said, let me see your glory. And God in the text went on to explain, in essence, that His face no one can see. But before that, and if you were to look at Exodus 19, God says that, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And so whenever we were talking or talking about God's glory, it encompasses everything that He is, in essence. There is not one aspect of God that is more glorious than another. He is glorious. He is glorious. And whenever God says, I will show you my goodness, I will make it all pass before you, we acknowledge in that text that that one aspect of His glory is His goodness. Another aspect of His glory is, as He said there in that context to Moses, His name. His name. And His name speaks of all that He does. Who He is and what He does. And He goes on in that text and He says, I'll, I'll pass by you and show you My graciousness and My compassion. The text speaks of the fact that God is gracious and that He is full of compassion. And in that same text, another aspect of His glory is His absolute independence and sovereignty. Because there He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, God's not obligated to you or to me. He's not obligated to His creation. It is you, it is me, it is the creation. We are obligated to Him. He is completely independent. He transcends His creation. He is not subject to it. It is subject to Him. All these things, speaking of the creation, Psalm 119 says, are your servants. Are your servants. And notice Jude says as he speaks of God's glory, he also mentions His majesty. And that is the splendor of God, the beauty of God, the magnificence of God. Goes on and he speaks of God's dominion, and that is the scope of His rule and sovereignty. And that dominion is over everything. Over all creation. Speaking of His authority, not only is He over it, but He rules over all creation. You see, as we mentioned already, it is all about God. The Bible is clear. We could look at multiple passages in the Old Testament that historically demonstrate that in many, many ways. But listen to a few texts from the New Testament. In the New Testament, we know from Acts chapter 17, verse 26, that God has determined your beginning and your end. He has determined already 
our beginning and our end. Not just the beginning and the end of mankind in general, but the beginning and the end of every single person that exists. He has appointed our times there, the text said. The time that you live on this earth. The time that you are conceived to the time that you die. God has appointed that time. He has set, according to Acts 16 or 17.26, He has set your boundary. He has determined where you live. Where you go. How long you are there. Now, I know whenever we move around throughout the earth and go through our daily tasks, we have a tendency to view everything from our limited perspective. And rightly so to some extent, but we must not ever forget that ultimately it is God that is directing the course of all things. He has determined our time and our boundaries. But that's not enough to acknowledge because the Bible goes on and explains to us in that very context that in Him, according to verse 28, that is in God, we live and we move and we have our existence. What does that mean? Does that mean that everybody's a Christian? No. It just means that God is absolutely sovereign over all creation. Over all creation. Someone may ask again, what is it all about? It's about God. It's about God. All the things that transpire in heaven and earth, what is it all about? It is all about God. It's all about Him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 8 says that in Christ, all things are held together. Colossians 1, 8. In Him, all things, the text says, consist. They are held together. It's God who sustains all creation. I've used this analogy before and you can see it by going out on some of the apps and look at, there's one particular app called a satellite app. And what it actually does, this app enables you to look at all of the satellites in outer space that we have put up there historically. And listen, there's not one or two up there. There's thousands up there floating around. And they're all organized. Now, from our perspective, we know that we get a little difficulty every now and then going on and we can crash those things into one another or they run out of juice and they fall. But take and back up from that for a moment and look at the tens of millions, the billions, the trillions, the countless, we could go on and on, of stars that exist just in our universe alone not including the millions that are beyond ours and how God sustains every one of them in complete order. Now, I know evolutionists would have us to believe that there was sometime in the past some great explosion and that out of that explosion came some, le some level of order. 
And then out of that, there came some little single cell. And that single cell somehow got stuck on this place called Earth. And somehow or another, through that incredible explosion, that cell developed into multiple cells and eventually crept up out of the slime someplace onto the land after being a fish for who knows how long. And nobody really knows. Have you ever gone to those museums and looked at that? The times are incredibly ridiculous. Not only are they too long, but they conflict constantly. But anyway, that crept out and became from a lizard, a bird, and from a bird, a, I don't know what, a man? Eventually, no, first a monkey, then a man. And on and on. And sadly, there are even Christians who believe that God used evolution to get us to where we are now. I don't know what book they've been reading. But, whenever you look at that creation out there, billions, countless of stars, God holds them all together in Jesus Christ. In Him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that He, that is Christ, upholds all things by the word of His power. By the word of His power, He is sustaining them. The Bible in the book of Romans chapter 11, verse 36, tells us that all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that He is working all things after the counsel of His will. You take all of those things that we've mentioned already this morning in existence, and all of the countless things we haven't mentioned, that have existed, do exist now, or will ever exist. Whatever they are, God is working them after the counsel of of His sovereign will. Right now. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, speaks of the fact that that is why there is a creation. Because of the will of God. What's it all about? It's about God. It's about Him. Where is everyone headed? They're headed to Him. They're headed to God. One way or another. That does not mean that everyone's saved, but what it does mean is this. As Philippians says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Everyone is headed to God. It's all about Him. It only makes sense that ultimately everyone will appear before Him. Every single person. No exception. I don't care if you believe in God or not, that isn't going to change it. Why is someone, and how can someone be so ignorant to think just because they don't believe something, it doesn't exist? Talk about pride. That's pride. I don't believe it, so it can't be real. 
And on the flip side, if you believe in God, that doesn't make him real. He is real and he is the end of all things, whether we believe it or not, whether we accept it or not. And let me assure you, it is going to be accepted by everyone eventually. Because everyone will eventually appear before him. What's it all about? It's about God. Where is everyone headed? Before God. Before his presence. Without exception. And that's what Jude, in essence, is communicating here insofar as the practical things of living are concerned. Now, we could go and we could look at many other verses in the New Testament as well as the Old to to understand that. But I think that we have the general idea this morning. God, in His greatness and His glory, has made a creation. And He has done so for the purpose, for the point of demonstrating His majesty, His glory, His dominion, His authority. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. And yes, even the reality of sin existing in a fallen world is here because God has decreed it to be here. Sin and Satan are no accident. The Bible is explicitly clear about that. That God created all things in six days. The heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, the Bible says. Not most of the things that are in them. Not all the things that are in them that we would call good, but all the things that are in them. Now that doesn't make God evil. By no means. And we don't have the time to get into the first and secondary causes of the existence of things today, this morning. But the reality is that sin would not be present in a good God's world if that good God had not decreed it to be there. That's the bottom line. Satan would not have fallen if God in eternity passed before Satan was ever even created He would not have been if God had not determined him to be here and decreed his presence. He would not have fallen had God not decreed it. But that God has decreed it from his goodness does not mean that God is evil. We know from the New Testament that our sin demonstrates, according to Romans chapter 3, God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 5, our sin demonstrates God's love we can see against the backdrop of our sin the magnificent glory and majesty of God. The brightness of it and the goodness of it. And He has done that at least on that level. And there may be much more that we do not even know and understand. It's all about God. It's all about Him. And everyone is going to stand before him. Now having demonstrated that in this text, and I understand that we have not looked in detail at verse 25, but that's a general observation of it and a practical 
application of it. Let's back up now to verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. Powerful statement. Jude in verse 3, as you remember, called Christians to earnestly contend for the faith with which was once for all delivered to the saints. He gave the reason for that in verse 4, because there were certain individuals who had crept in unnoticed. And by the way, there is a statement there that they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. They are described there in verse 4 as ungodly persons. And the fact that they, in creeping in, they turn the grace of our, of our God into licentiousness. And they deny Jesus Christ. He exhorted Christians after he went on to demonstrate those individuals would be judged. He exhorted Christians whenever we moved in our text over to verse 17 and 18, to remember the words of the apostles that these individuals would come. It's no surprise that they are here. God has decreed it, and He has declared they would come. He exhorted us and commanded us as we contend for the faith to be about building ourselves up or constructing ourselves in our most holy faith in verse 20 that we are to converse in the Holy Spirit, that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, that is, we are to preserve ourselves in God's love, and we are to confidently expect the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the glory, as the text says, or the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ as He comes to eternal life, And then he moved and shifted to how we are to address those who are influenced by these false teachers. We are to have mercy on those who doubt. And as the text says, we are to have on others mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And we looked at that particular case last week and Before that one, there was the condition of um, snatching others, saving others out of the fire, the difficulties that they encounter because they have, have detoured from the Word of God or taken a course that is contrary to God's Word. Others who are involved in the sin, and we spent much time last week looking at the fact that as Christians and dealing with them, we are to hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. That is, we are to have the right mindset and attitude with regard to sin. Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh is is, uh, hyperbole for addressing our attitude towards sin and the recognition on the part of the Christian that we are to be about the pursuit of holiness in our own lives, about the pursuit of our lives being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
And as we do that, we are to have mercy. We are to have mercy. Listen, mankind faces no greater confrontation in all his life than when he is confronted with his own sinful condition. So in love is man with his sin, and so deceived is he by his sin. And the sin of a world that is corrupt, that if he cannot hide in darkness to enjoy the pleasures of his sin, as it rots him away, he will inevitably attempt to kill the light that destroys it. If he can't hide from it, if he can't hide from the light of the truth of the Word of God, then he'll look to destroy it. That's exactly what he's done. Whenever Christ came into the world, he came as the light of God. And according to John chapter 3, because men loved darkness, their deeds were evil. And what did they eventually do? They crucified the Lord of glory. They crucified Clearly, that was demonstrated in the New Testament in Christ's first advent as he came as the light to the world, exposing man's sin and thereby man's guilt before God who is holy. So violently confrontational was this encounter of light that was God's mercy with the darkness of sin that the misery produced by guilt lashed out and killed the very personification of mercy himself, that is, Jesus Christ. Instead of confessing sin and forsaking it, mankind generally conceals his sin, and in doing so forfeits God's mercy and with it any hope of prospering. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. Remember, and it must be remembered in this clash of forces that it is not mercy that is mean. For true mercy is never mean. It is sin that is mean. First, it is mean because it is against God. And secondly, it is mean because it is the root of the misery of man. God's mercy, however, is the remedy. And that is what Believers are to communicate to the lost world around them. Now, as we looked at last week and the week before, mercy does not dismiss sin. 
Mercy does not minimize sin. True biblical mercy confronts sin. And it tells the sinner that there is a holy God. And that everything and everyone is headed before him. To be presented before him. Either presented before him in their sin or in Jesus Christ. That he is just that he is just and that he is holy. And if a person stands before God in the end in his or her sin, they will stand there condemned. And they will stand there as the recipient of the judgment of God. And they, according to Revelation chapter 20, will be cast into the lake of the fire, into the lake of fire where the devil and the false prophet, the Antichrist, all three exist. And their torment will continue forever and ever and ever. This life isn't the end. A person's life may end and will end in this life, but that's not the end. There is an eternity in front of it. God has created it to exist for eternity. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be those who are judged who will remain in that judgment for eternity. Under for eternity the condemnation of God. Why? Listen. Notice that doxology again in Jude. How long is God's glory to be ascribed to him? Take a look at the text. Before all time, now, and forever. God is great in his glory in eternity past. He's great in his glory now. And he's great in his glory in the future. He transcends all time. And for eternity, those who are experiencing His justice and the misery of it in the lake of fire, Satan there, the Antichrist there, the false prophet there, and all those who were not written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, all of them there will be there for eternity. Yes, in agony. Is it unjust that God who is holy, that God who is loved, that God who is good would leave mankind in such misery, the small and the great, for eternity? If He did not, He would not be just. He would not be just. Because the payment for sinning against God who is eternal, must itself last eternally. It must. And the payment is His judgment. It's His judgment. Just like His mercy will last for eternity. If you're a Christian, we praise the Lord that that mercy is going to last into eternity. 
that it will never end. And why so? Because God is eternal. And he has had in his graciousness and his mercy just that. And he has placed in and on Christ the sins of those for whom he died. And because Christ has borne their sin, and he has paid their price, the price for their sin, they will receive the mercy and the grace of God, not just eons, that's measurable, but for eternity, immeasurable, timelessness. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now unto him who is able, look at the text again, to keep you from stumbling, And to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless. Two things mentioned about God here in this text for the Christian. First, that He is able to keep the believer from stumbling. The Greek word translated stumbling is used only by Jude here. And in its proper use referred to as a horse that stumbles. However, in this case, Jude uses the word in a moral sense, and it applies it, he applies it to God's ability to keep the Christian from falling or stumbling into sin. Remember the last exhortation, and I told you that we would see how they are com- connected together. The last exhortation that came in verse 23 is, And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. This last exhortation was that of calling Christians to have mercy, you remember, with fear. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. A recognition of the danger of sin. Fear of God. Fear of even sin. That doesn't mean that we are running around in fear. But it's the idea of recognizing the dangers of sin. We spent some time last week looking at that. I've mentioned it multiple times. Sin, and we don't have the time this morning to look at the multitude the Bible speaks of, the dimensions of it, or even the nature of it. But one of the incredible aspects of sin is its deceitfulness, according to Hebrews chapter 3. It has the ability to deceive. Another aspect of sin is its diffusive nature. That it permeates until it affects the entire lump of dough. That it permeates every aspect of our lives when we tolerate it. That's why God says here, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And we need to recognize and praise the Lord for this 24th verse. For to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. You know, because we live in a sinful world, because sin is present with even Christians now, some in evangelicalism have minimized it. 
they have looked on it and said, well, it's always here and we're just not going to be able to get, get to a point in this life where we are not without sin. And that's a biblical truth. But that truth is no reason to accommodate sin in our lives. It's no reason to tolerate it. It's no reason to allow it to linger. And the Bible exhorts us time and time again to put sin to death in our lives. Mortify your members that are upon the earth, Colossians 3 says. Put it to death. You see, we are to be as Christians, the text says as Peter wrote it, we are to be holy because the one who called us, that is God, is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. All true believers recognize they are sinners and are therefore vulnerable to sin. As I mentioned last week, you may have, whenever you've been witnessing to someone, confronted them about their sin, and you've heard perhaps something like this. I've heard this. Well, are, are you saying you're so holy that you're better than I am? And the response to that, the biblical response is simply this. Are you kidding me? Because I am a sinner. And I recognize that more than you do. I have fallen down by virtue of God's grace before Christ and begged for His forgiveness. You won't do it because you're a hypocrite. And you don't recognize to that person, say, the danger of sin and the reality of it in your own life. For if you did and you recognize that you would stand before God one day, or you will stand before God one day, you would be on your knees to Christ even now. See how deceitful sin is? And oftentimes the Christian, when they hear that, you're trying to be holier than we are. Oh, no, we say, no, we're not trying to be. You know, we go into all this stuff. Are you kidding? We know we're sinners. We know it. And because we know it, we have fallen down before the forgiver of sin. So important. This exhortation reminds Christians of this fact. And the text uses this hyperbolic language. And it expresses in that language the attitude believers are to have towards sin whenever it comes to having mercy on others who even are themselves sinners. We are to deal responsibly whenever it comes to sin. And if we are not, then we will succumb to sin ourselves. But we must recognize and trust God. Our mindset with regard to sin should be one, as this text expresses, of hatred. And we also need to have the mindset that communicated to us, that is communicated us in, to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The text says there, that there has no temptation taken you, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful, 
that he will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able to bear, but will provide escape that you may be able to bear up under it. You see, believers, sin comes to us and Satan whispers in our ear, well, you're just a sinner. You can't help but sin. But God says to us in Romans 6, that he has delivered us from the dominion of sin, from the bondage of sin. And yes, we don't have to yield to it. We can resist it. We can resist the devil. And we can stand fast and faithful. That's the blessing of being a Christian. Praise the Lord. And at the end of the day, this we know from Hebrews or Jude 24, that he is able to keep us from stumbling. Trust in him. Trust him. And I love this next reality. Look at the second thing that Jude mentions about God here. He is able to make the believer stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Wow. This is the presentation of the saints of God before his throne. That little phrase, in the presence of his glory, conveys the idea of being brought face to face with God. Such a presentation, therefore, before all the divine attributes of God. Think about it for a second. A face to face encounter. In the immediate presence of God, if you thought about it all day and night, you will never be able to comprehend it. Whenever God spoke to Moses there in Exodus 33, God told him, No one, no one can see my face and live. God there in that instant speaking to Moses using what we know to be anthropomorphic language. What does that mean? He was communicating to Moses in a way that Moses might, just a little bit, in Moses' own feeble, limited understanding, that Moses might be able to get his mind around it a little bit. Because God doesn't have a face as we know it. He's not a man in that sense. Now Christ, God incarnate, has a face. Because he has a body. But 
Anthropomorphic language describes God in a way that we can comprehend him in our little limited understanding. Now, don't conclude, well, if God doesn't have a face, then he's nothing. No. You're never going to be able to to comprehend the fullness of God and his glory and his majesty. We're not. We're the created things. He will always transcend the creation. Even in heaven, he will be greater than us. But what did God say whenever he spoke to Moses? No one can see my face. What's the significance of that word face? Well, think about it this way. When you see a person's face, Instantly, there is something that takes place in your brain and my brain that identifies that person to us of who they are. And immediately when you see them, all of these things flood your mind about that person and who he or she is. The face is a means of identifying who they are. You know, we have on multiple cameras throughout the world now what we refer to as facial recognition. You have that on some of your telephones. You can look at your phone and all of a sudden it opens up to you all of those things that you have in your phone. It's your security there. It's it's one of the multiple multi-factor authentication methods used today to identify people. And facial recognition takes a photograph, in a sense, of all the multiple points of your face. And the computer, through multiple means, uses that to identify you. And you can even change some of those features and move them around and add to them. But still, the machine's able to pull enough points together to identify you. Whenever God told Moses, no one can see my face and live. It's an absolute statement. No one is going to be able to fully and absolutely behold God in that absolute sense and survive it because God's the creator and ultimately we are the creation. And especially someone who is not holy. Not holy. Who is in their sin. God there in Exodus 33.20 told Moses, No one can see my face and live. You know that even the angels in Isaiah 6 that surround the throne of God, and say to God every day, all day, in, through time, holy, holy, holy. One of the things that Isaiah saw as he looked upon them was they covered their face. They covered their face. With two of their wings, they covered their face. 
with two of their wings, they covered their feet. The idea of that is that they had gone throughout the world and they had come from the world. They were without sin, but they had been in the presence of sinners and they covered their feet. And with two, the text said they did fly. Isaiah himself, whenever he encountered God in that event, said, woe is me, for I am undone. Or I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He knew his own sin. Whenever Ezekiel beheld God in Ezekiel 1.28, the text says he fell on his face. He fell on his face. Daniel, whenever he encountered the angel Gabriel, not even God, but the angel, he said that he dropped Daniel to his face. He fell on his face. And he said after that he was exhausted and he said he was sick in Daniel 8.27 for several days. That's just beholding the angel Gabriel. When the Apostle John in the book of Revelation chapter 1.17 saw the glory of Jesus Christ, the text tells us that he fell at his feet, the feet of Christ, as a dead man. Most people shriek and shiver before what are just the fringes of the magnificence of God whenever you see the terrors fall on the earth. You know, there's an interesting thing about catastrophes in the world. We're living in a day and an age where we can see them brought right before our eyes on the television screen. The terrors that the people have recently gone through in Turkey with the earthquake, the recent terrors of those that experienced the destruction of their homes and property in California, and on and on down the list. We can see that. And you see it on the TV, and whenever you see it there, to some extent, you become immune to it. But whenever you're there, and whenever you experience those things, It's a different story. One day we will be before the throne of God. We will appear before Him, in a sense, presented to Him face to face. Notice the text. That should bring us to our needs. When by faith we really grasp the magnitude of that, we should be humbled. And if it were not for these words and others, our faith would be a dangerous thing for us. Because it would bring us even now before that magnificent throne of God, and we would have to say, Lord, how can I bear it? To know the reality that I will be there and put the period there 
would be more than we could bear. We would be like Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Faith shows us something else. though. It shows us this. That He is able to make us stand in His presence. And look at the word. Praise the Lord. Blameless. Blameless. Wow. Not because we did something. Notice, He is able to. He is able. Well, how did He do that? Through Jesus Christ. He poured out our sins on Him. And He will present His people before Himself through Christ, blameless. And then I love the next phrase. With great joy. You know, those who stand before God without Christ will have no joy. They will stand before Him in their sin and they will be condemned in their sin. And there is for them waiting nothing but weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Where Jesus described that even in that place their worm will not die. It's a way of talking about ongoing eternal misery. Their worm, it's T-H-E-I-R, their worm. However that is spelled, now I've got it turned around. But it's a personal worm that is in view. Not their, the worm will not die, T-H-E-R-E. But their worm will not die. Their misery will be unending. It's the picture of a, a maggot consuming a body and the misery associated with it. Their worm will not die. But for those who are in Jesus Christ, whose sins are forgiven, God will make them stand before Him. God will do it. Blameless with great joy. What a praise. What a praise. With joy, because they are blameless. Blameless because of God, not because of them. As they sing in Revelation 5, it is Christ, with and through and by His blood, that He has purchased them. Stand with me this morning. God says clearly in His Word that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there's not one righteous, not even one. That every knee will bow before Him. That is the direction we're all headed. 
The exhortation is to cry out to God, to confess one's sins. As Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent of one's sins and believe that God has sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. And not worry about that person over there, or this person here, or back there, but be concerned about this person. There's only one possible other person that could stand with you before the throne of God to help you in any way, shape, or form is Jesus Christ. And He's already come and given His life on the cross and all who call upon Him will be saved. Praise the Lord. Father in heaven, thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. And indeed, Lord, this morning as we've examined these words and all the things that have said how much far short we have come. For your glory and your majesty is beyond what we are even able to put into words. Have mercy and work in the minds and hearts of each one of us to call us to repent, to press on in the things of Christ, to stand fast and faithful because you are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless with great joy before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen.